Hello and welcome. This is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. With me today is Stuart MacDonald, who, with his wife, Samantha Brown, established Travel Fish, a uh, very well-known website that covers travel and all the problems and all the issues associated with it across Southeast Asia. Stuart, why don't you take us back to where it all started and how Travel Fish came about? Hi Luke. Uh, Sam and I were living in in Bangkok at the time uh, and we had done various jobs working at newspapers and embassies and and the embassy and that kind of thing. And we saw an opportunity. Uh, I'd written some guidebooks previously in the past and I knew how to build a basic website. And so we put together um, what at the time was just covering very typical backpacker places in Southeast Asia, but it was where Sam and I enjoyed traveling to. And we had no plan, there was no business plan, we're not from a business background. And over the years, the the site just slowly grew. Um, So now we're, I guess you'd say, one of the largest independent websites that are specific solely to Southeast Asia. And while the site started primarily focused on very budget backpacker travel, because that's how Sam and I were traveling at the time, uh, the site has grown with us as as we've had kids and changed our form of travel and as we've moved around the region. Um, and so now it appeals to a broader market, but we still try and focus on family-owned businesses and local operations and keeping your travel close to the ground. And of course, the whole travel industry has changed enormously over the last 15 years with the, the introduction of... Uh, low-cost airlines, but at the same time, there's the, the advances in digital technology, how people access their information about where they go and how they get there and where they stay. And also the politics of the region has had an enormous impact on uh, where people go. How, how has that impacted on your business? And how do you see, how have you seen those changes uh, impact on the industry itself? Well. If there's one thing you could say about the travel industry is um, that's that it's forever changing. And so we've rode some of the waves of that change and we've certainly drowned in some of the waves as well as things have changed. How people are traveling has changed. Like you mentioned, low cost airlines, that's been a huge uh, sea change in how people travel. I mean, when I first came to the region before Travel Fish, so in, in 1993, the idea of going from from KL to Siem Reap for a, for a weekend was completely unfathomable for, yeah. a, for a budget traveler. Um, you had to go overland from Bangkok and the trip was legendarily uh, awful. I remember it. Yes, <laughs> the road from Poit Pet was, was forever a shocker. Um, but now you can hop, skip and jump all over the region and um, visas have come become much easier security generally has become far safer for the, for uh, international travelers um, so it's become a much easier region to travel in and simultaneously to that like back in 93 everyone just had a book you were either a rough guide person or a lonely planet person at right. least in the crowd that i i traveled in um, and while those books still are, can be very valuable um, there's a whole plethora of other information available online, like what we're preparing on Travel Fish, but there's also travel blogs and other destination-specific websites and tourism board websites and hotel websites. And every man and his dog has a website telling you what to do and how to do it and that kind of thing. So 
it's sort of gone from one extreme to the other where previously you have one book and now it's really information overload um, mm-hmm. and it can be uh, quite challenging for a, a newcomer to the region to sort of part, pare down their list of what they want to do because you can find out so much from the couch before you even leave. Um, right. So that's that's one way it has changed for sure. Right. And I've always found that people outside the region tend to view Southeast Asia or ASEAN kind of as a block. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's lived in the region would know that that's not quite so and that it's very patchy and that countries go up and down according to their politics. Uh, Thailand at the moment is not looking great, nor is Cambodia, but there have been times when both countries looked uh, far more attractive uh, for travellers and for business mm-hmm. and for uh, access. Do you, how do you see the region shaping up in terms of the uh, travel industry going forward? It's a very complicated issue. I mean, in 25 years, we've seen Burma be closed and then open and become in vogue. And then off the back of the, of the genocide, they uh, really dropped back off the map, at least for travellers from some countries. Cambodia was looking extremely promising. Now, like parts of the the country, uh, people are just stopping going there, you know, for lots of different reasons. Indonesia is another classic example where um, when the visa rules were changed off around the same time as the Bali bombings, it had a devastating effect uh, on tourism to the country outside of Bali. Right. So people, you would have hoteliers in, say, Lombok or something say, well, Bali had a the hangover from the from the Bali bombings, but it recovered relatively quickly in say 18 months or something like that. But in some parts of Lombok, they say that the hangover lasted 10 years. I've just come back from North Sumatra, and on that trip, I went to Lake Toba, and there was almost nobody there, even though it was shoulder season. If there was 50 foreign travellers on on the main island at, at Toba, I, I'd eat my flip flops, <laughs> but. Um, previous to the Bali bombings, I was told, Lake Toba was the second, was the most popular tourist destination in Indonesia after Bali. Wow. Yeah. So that, yeah. it was a devastating effect. And it's a combination of things. It's the changing visa rules. It's foreign governments, say in the UK, um, and travel main, warnings. maintaining um, very concerning travel warnings that really weren't applicable to much of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was scaring off people and affects travel insurance, which then affects tour companies. And so they stopped bringing people and they cancelled trips. So people stopped coming and to try and turn around from that kind of change can be very challenging for destinations, you know, mm-hmm. particularly when the infrastructure isn't as good as perhaps it could be. Yeah. Um, and that combined with people are traveling different ways, like I said, off the back of low cost flights. The long, long travel trips like backpackers taking a, a gap year, say, from the UK mm-hmm. and coming out to Southeast Asia for a year and spending six months in Indonesia, you just don't meet these people anymore. Well, I don't anyway. No, neither do I. They were a common sight in um, Thailand, Cambodia. There are, mm-hmm. you know, suburbs were dedicated to cheap hostels, cheap bars, and they all seem to have disappeared or certainly what's left of them is a damn sight smaller. 
Well, it's people taking shorter breaks. I mean, uh, in the UK or in Australia, people's financial situations have changed and it's perhaps more difficult to put money away to go and take a year off to travel the world than it was in, say, 92 or something like that. But also it's like, well, you know, it's this whole bucket list mentality and I've got to go to Lake Toba and Bali and uh, see, go to Jogjakarta and Singapore and Hanoi. And knock, all, off, and knock off 10 countries in six weeks. Well, yeah. And I mean, like 20 years ago, you couldn't do that in two weeks. Now you can. Right. But you'll be flying all those legs and you'll only be spending time in the, in the destination where there's the airport. Right. So... Well, that, bring, that actually brings me to another point, actually. Um, say, Thailand is uh, is a major hub for the region, and mm. I've, I have had quite a few uh, people in the industry have said to me that um, you have your European tourists mm-hmm. who it's cold, it's wet, uh, it's miserable, we've got to get out of here for a few weeks, and often they look at the map and they'll say Southeast Asia or the Caribbean. Yep. They see they might want to go to Cambodia, but they'll see the headlines in Thailand, mm-hmm. and that will be enough for them to say, we'll go to the Caribbean. Sure, sure. I mean, people, like we have, again, in using Indonesia as an example, but we'll have like a, like Sinabung, a volcano in northern Sumatra, right. will erupt, and people will cancel their trip in Bali. And that's like having a volcano erupt in Istanbul and saying, I'm not going to go to Madrid. Right. You know, <laughs> um, and it's people often think about it in the European context if they've been to Europe first as a traveler and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I can get the train from here to there or drive from here to there and it won't take very long. And then they get out here and realize that to travel 100 kilometers might take 10 hours. Well, it was like, uh, as you mentioned before, the trip from the Thai border oh, of Pet to Siem yeah. I remember taking that trip once and it was uh, 16 hours. Yeah. Now it's three. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, people have changed how they travel. Their situations have changed. They've got shorter leave periods, that kind of thing. But people have also become more attuned to responsible travel and thinking about the politics that they travel, of the countries that they travel in. Um, I mean, Burma is the prime candidate for that. But also Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos. Thailand. I mean, Thailand's been. Thailand is like coated in Teflon. It doesn't seem to matter what happens there politically. The tourists keep coming. Right. Uh, and there's one argument that that sort of says, well, I'm just going on holiday. I shouldn't have to do a PhD in in human rights of the country to be allowed to go and lay on the beach. And I buy that. But in the same breath, it pays to know what's going on and make an informed decision. And more people are doing that. And we're seeing that, say, with what's happened in Burma, where at least for organized tour companies, inbound tours from, say, Western Europe, Canada, Australia, the numbers have collapsed, seriously collapsed. And Burma has pivoted to the Chinese market and the regional ASEAN tourists to make up the slack. And this is an issue with a lot of these governments who month after month and year after year now are coming out and boasting about their tourist numbers being up. And we all know that these numbers are simply boosted by the Chinese arrivals. And a lot of that's workers, a lot of that's uh, you know 
in our Chinese tour buses into Chinese businesses. Uh, there's a term for it, uh, zero sum. Zero sum uh, tours. Tourism, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is a part of it. Uh, but the majority, of, at least to Indonesia, from what I understand, the majority of inbound Chinese tourism is now, they call them fits. So they're not in groups. Right. And, but there's still plenty of them. There's also, there's the whole South Asian market, which is really picking up as well. Middle-class uh, Indians coming to Thailand or Laos or Indonesia, Malaysia or wherever. Um, and mm-hmm. also the Middle Eastern market, particularly to Indonesia um, because and Malaysia, because they're so appealing from uh, halal tourism, kind sure. of that whole, uh, medical, that whole tu- medical, medical tourism, tourism Bangkok as well. So these are really large potential markets that are coming online and like you say you have the governments uh, sort of going yeah we're gonna increase tourism 10 percent year on year and that kind of thing but you don't hear a lot of people from the governments talking about how sustainable this growth is uh, talking about over tourism talking about the environmental costs of this kind of thing so the first time i went to thailand which was in 93 mm-hmm. tourism from memory was around seven seven and a half million per year Mm-hmm. Now, last year, I think it was about 38 million. Right. Okay, so you've got, what, what is that? That's like a, a 500% increase, something like that. In, in that period, the number of beaches in island, and islands in Thailand hasn't changed. Thailand right. hasn't found 500% new islands to send people to. So sometimes these very fragile environments right. are dealing with a hundredfold number of people that used to go there. And there's really not a lot of thought, at least at a governmental level, mm-hmm. about how to address what's going to be left in another 20 years. And we go back just a, just a few weeks ago, they announced that PP was going to be basically closed indefinitely. Mm. A lovely island in uh, Thailand, which uh, the locals are complaining about, but the locals moved in after everybody else was annihilated in mm. the tsunami in 2004. Five, four, four. <laughs> it was Christmas. Uh, so, uh, Boracay in the Philippines has had a similar experience, and yeah. I suspect that uh, Gaya Island and the national park off the coast of Kota Kinabalu may well follow suit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was asked, uh, you know, uh, about the locals and how they're up in arms and screaming about this. But at the end of the day, if you kill your own product, you don't have a business model. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, what's going to be left for the people, for my children, to go and see? Right. Um, um, and I mean, yeah, you can say I'm going to close this destination for two years or whatever to, to clean it up. But if they, were, if they had a more sustainable model of tourism in place in the first place, these kind of measures wouldn't be necessary. Like PP is a really good example. Like tragically, it was devastated by the tsunami. And I went there. I was there, I think, five days after the tsunami. And it was heartbreaking to see what had happened. But it was a silver lining to the disaster was that it was an opportunity to rebuild the destination into a more sustainable mm-hmm. place for people to go. That didn't happen. And it came back just as bad as it was previously, if not worse. And that's a, a missed opportunity. And mm-hmm. now you're seeing the results of that on PP Lay, which is the island near it, uh, where they've had to shut it down completely because the tourism, the visitor rates were, were just insane. Yeah, I mean, you will see this kind of thing more. People are saying, like, I don't want to go to this museum or I don't want to go to the Royal Palace or something like that when I'm going to have to queue for four hours or there's 10,000 people there or that kind of thing. Take a number. Take a number. Take a number. I mean, this kind of thing, 
I wouldn't be surprised in the next five years to see um, uh, more systems where you'll need to book in advance, where museums will look at, okay, what is the ideal number of people that we have moving through this place? And so we'll make this many tickets available. And even if they're free, but you still have to reserve a place. Right. And so if you're not a, people reserve their hotels, they reserve their flights. Mm-hmm. People can do this. And if you don't plan ahead, if you don't get a ticket, well, get a postcard, you know. Yeah. Uh, we, we went to Japan a few years ago and everybody had told us to go and see this, uh, I forget the name of it now, it's some famous whiskey brewery. And of course, I didn't plan anything. And just before we were leaving, this friend's like, so have you booked your tickets? Mm. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I was just going to go. And she's like, no, 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 you, you have to book in advance. It's set numbers and everything. And so, of course, it was completely booked out and we weren't able to, to go and see this whiskey distillery. And I can see that kind of thing replaying itself at so many destinations. Right, but there's only so many museums people want to see and a lot of people, particularly in the West, are repeat travellers and they go back to the destinations that uh, that they love. Yeah. And many years ago, governments were complaining that uh, it's all well and good to get the backpackers in, but they don't spend any money. Now we've got the middle class markets, the, mm. the middle class people have been coming in and they have a lot more money to spend and they're the educated people that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily, they don't, they don't want to stand in queues. And it's what you were saying before about being a little more educated. The more educated people tend to have more money. These are the people the government wants. Uh, but there's a contradiction of terms emerging about why would they come? Why would they spend their money here? And what are their alternative destinations? Well, I'm going to bring this back a bit. So mm-hmm. I, I'd like to talk about this. Sure. This often gets trotted out that backpackers don't spend money. Right. Or that they spend less money. Um, and... At, at Travelfish, one of, the, one of the things we like to think about tourism is tourism is much more than just going and laying on a beach or having a green curry or going to a museum or something like that. It's the opportunity for cultural change, for learning about people in different cultures and learning a bit of the language and that kind of cultural interchange, which I think particularly in the world today um, is a really important thing for young people to do. So backpackers might not be spending $100 a night or whatever, but they're far more likely to be staying in a locally owned business. Right. They're far more, and so that trickle down effect, they're putting their money in the Ibu's hand, who's working in the, in the street front restaurant that a, a package tourist would, would just walk past or it looks too dirty or whatever. They're the ones who are gonna be staying in the locally run family owned guest houses and that kind of thing. And they're putting money in these people's hands. When um, a more mid-range traveller, I mean big stereotypes here, but bear with me. When a a more mid-range traveller comes through, they're staying at a chain hotel that might be owned by a hotelier from Jakarta who has absolutely no vested interest. I mean, yes, the, the hotel's creating jobs and all that kind of thing, but this whole growth of mini hotels, the $25 a night thing where you get, you know, everything you need, uh, they're completely interchangeable and forgettable. Right. Where when you're staying in uh, Pak Nyoman's homestay and you're meeting his kids and his wife's taking them to school and all of that kind of thing, it, there's a lot more cultural in- interchange and learning wrapped up in that. And I think it's really important 
for for younger people, well, and older people too. You can teach old old dogs new tricks, right? Um, it's just to, whether to, they to, remember to or not. Of, to, <laughs> yeah, to sort of give people a better understanding of the countries that they're traveling in. I mean, Indonesia is the, the um, prime candidate for this kind of thing. Like you look at how the Australian media often repeats reports on mm-hmm. on Indonesia. Um, and often it's good, but often it's it's terrible. And the screaming headlines. The screaming headlines, and it's not democratic, and it's going to be a um, you know a conservative Muslim nightmare, and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, if you go and spend any time with local people running local homestays, you'll realise that this is like way off the mark. Right. Um, so that kind of cultural changes, I think, very right. important. And it, it takes people further afield. It takes people to where there aren't the mini hotels and a Marriott and that kind of thing. And so from a local's, like this is a two-way interchange, you know, mm-hmm. it's not just the foreigner coming and getting to gaze at the locals. It's giving the locals a better understanding of say what an Australian is right. like. Um, and I mean, Indonesia's Australia's closest neighbor. Yes. I'm pretty sure. Um, Absolutely. But you leave well, you leave Bali, do. you leave Bali, you don't meet Australians. If there's waves, you'll meet Australians. If there's no waves, there's nobody there, you know. And mm. I travel I've traveled not all of this archipelago, but a lot of it, and you'll meet French, Germans, Spanish, mm. a lot of Spanish, Italians. You don't meet Australians. Right. But you go to like the cafe opposite my house in Seminyak and there's more Australians in there than I'll meet in like two months in, in Eastern Indonesia. Sure. I remember uh, the first time I came to Bali was in 1984. And about not long after I got back home, there was a 60 Minutes report, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about Australians dying in Bali. And mm-hmm. if you go to Bali, you're risking your life. When right. the actual numbers, was a, it was an... It was an atrocious report. It was hysterical. Mm-hmm. The actual numbers were not any different to what they are now in terms of... Uh, there, there was no spike in Australians dying here at all. It was basically right. a drummed-up report. But I, I, I did admire the local uh, sense of humour because they all produced these... Uh, uh, t-shirts that, uh, well, I shouldn't say it, but they, they basically said, uh, fuck your 60 minutes, I had a brilliant time in Bali. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we've seen these things come and go yeah. over the years. I mean, uh, for people who have never been to the region, it doesn't matter what country you're going to, it can be a, not a scary, but you thought, oh, you know, is it safe? Am I going to get robbed? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and... Each of each of the countries in the region has its is a gets its own flag for a different kind of issue. So for in Indonesia, it's terror, 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 terror. Mm-hmm. Right? You're far more likely, like a hundredfold times likely, to have a problem here because you're riding a motorcycle without a helmet. That's yep. absolutely the easiest way to die in Indonesia. Drinking tainted alcohol, right? So distilled, bodgy alcohol. That's probably the second most likely. And after that, it tapers off to almost nothing. Right. You know, you wouldn't. I mean, the the uh, dodgy booze does get like some media coverage, but the motorcycle thing. I mean, we see it all the time where where I live. You know, mm-hmm. dropping my kids off to school, and you see these tourists riding past without a helmet. I mean, it just 
it does my head. Well, is it, you know? yeah, no, it's been a big issue elsewhere in the region. Yeah. Uh, certainly sure. in uh, Cambodia, where there was a big push by the embassies to get people to wear motorbike helmets. And right. Simply because there's access to brain surgeons, right. which you kind of, if you pull off a motorbike, you may well need. Yeah. And the cost of being medevac to one is extraordinary. Yeah, and true. people just don't think about these things. Well, I mean, you go you go overseas, you pack your 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 clothes and your laptop and your guidebook and your toothbrush and all that kind of thing, but you don't pack your brain. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the thing. People behave like this. Would you drive? A motorcycle without a helmet, without a license in your home country. Wouldn't be allowed. You wouldn't be allowed. I would say 90% at least of the tourists you see riding around yeah. here are not doing it legally. And they most likely wouldn't do it in their home country. I've seen so, I have seen some absolute absurd behaviour uh, in Bali. Yeah, yeah. It's been extraordinary. Just going back to what you were saying before about like local homestays, because the arrival of the Chinese... Uh, in such vast numbers in, say, Cambodia, 2 million alone, mm. which is enormous in a population of just 15 million. Yeah. You know, we, had, we did have these, um, and it was the same in Bali and in big chunks of Bangkok uh, and elsewhere, the, all these businesses that had been geared around Western consumers, the bars, mm. the restaurants, and now they're just empty. And right. the Chinese don't spend money. They don't... Or, they don't spend money in those types of bars. They spend money in their in uh, the, the the whole concept of Guangxi, which is um, the family-owned businesses and bars that have been uh, established deliberately just to just to deal with them. And mm-hmm. it's um, it seems to have undermined the industry enormously across the region. Or has that been too strong? Uh, I wouldn't say it's undermined it, but it cer- certainly changed it. I mean, every nationality comes to a destination wanting different things, right. you know. Um, I mean, Australians might come here looking for, I don't know, beer. I don't think there's anything wrong with tourism changing over time as it caters to different tastes. Because before anybody was coming here, mm-hmm. there was none of this kind of stuff. There were no western orientated bars or cafes where you could get a, a soy milk right. smoothie bowl or whatever. But the numbers I'm are... not a fan of smoothie bowls, I guess. <laughs> um, but I mean, uh, I mean, so I guess you could argue um, that the first wave was um, Western tourists, yeah. um, and this is another wave of, of tourists coming through. But in between that is the, and this is certainly the, the case here in Indonesia and also in Thailand, is there's this huge wave of domestic travel. Right. right? So the number one. Um, uh, nationality of visitor to Bali is Indonesian. Okay. Right. So there's there's a lot more. All of these countries that, have their growing middle class, right. and they all want to travel too, and they want yeah. different things to what Westerners want as well. Sure. So I mean, there is that as well, and this is again coming back to Nyoman's homestay. When I was travelling in the 90s, primarily in Thailand, Laos, Cambodia. The chance of meeting a Thai backpacker or a Lao backpacker or a Khmer backpacker yeah, is zero, zero. Yeah. absolutely zero. Um, now yeah. it's common. Yeah. Like, you know, I still spend more time in dorm rooms than I probably should for someone of my age, but I do. And I'm more and more and more, I'm meeting domestic travelers there. And again, that's an opportunity not just for cultural interchange, but to say, oh, right, okay, you're from Nong Kai. Well, when I'm in Nong Kai, let's 
catch up and have a coffee or a beer or show right. me around town and that kind of thing. And so again, that's great. I mean, the 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 China thing is is noteworthy for the size, uh, like the the volume of people. But I mean, people would, I think people get hung up on the nationality when when really it's the volume. If it was if it is if, the volume, it's I, the volume. I mean, if Cambodia was getting two million New Zealanders a year, right, right for an example, uh, it would still face the same challenges. Yes, right? but one of the reasons why I'm raising this point, uh, I think another example would be Macau mm-hmm. and the casinos, yeah. where they've just the uh, the Chinese government will uh, has basically uh, hammered the casino industry by just saying no more they right. you we give you the visas to leave the country we give you permission now so if a government doesn't tow a chinese line so uh, for argument's sake cambodia mm. if it doesn't tow its uh, tow the chinese line on its position in the south china sea mm. the chinese government can quite easily turn around and say we're gonna two million tourists a year let's drop it back to one hundred thousand. sure and see how you feel sure. then well, that's always a case of not having all your eggs in one basket from a destination right. point of view. Um, casinos are um, a good example of bad tourism development, mm-hmm. right? You can look at, there's lots of people who are single issue travelers, right? They might be skiers or surfers or yep. divers or whatever. Um, and to a point, they don't really, the surfer doesn't really care where he's going if the waves are good, right? Like I meet lots of surfers who know barely where they even are in Indonesia, right? Uh, yep. They're there for the surf, yep. right? Same with divers. Um, and same with people who are primarily driven by going to a casino. They don't really care if the casino is in Macau or Sionville, for example, right. right? They just want to be able to, to gamble. The difference between those two, those these kind of things is that with divers or surfers or whatever, there's still the opportunity to be involved in local businesses, to stay at Newman's homestay, to leave money in the local community. Casinos are not locally owned. Casinos are almost invariably foreign money with a local partner who's coming in and plonking it down. It's this vertical enterprise that's got the casino and the room and the restaurant. There's no reason to leave. I mean, Joe down the street might get a job making beds or something like that. That's it. Yeah. And so I think casinos are a, a particularly, from a sustainability point of view, and there's also the organised crime and everything that comes Money with it. Money laundering. That has become a real issue in Sionikville. It's a particularly bad example of uh, unsustainable. The, the, it's development that the local community really doesn't benefit from, mm. other than getting some crappy jobs somewhere in the building. Uh, and all the money is siphoned back off. It doesn't go into roads and schools and, and taxes and things like that that um, benefit the local communities. Not in the same way as like when you've got surfers or divers yeah. or skiers or whatever. Not there's much of a skiing industry in the region, but um, all of those kind of things, um, well, I think are, are better. Um, like it's a, you know, it's a, it's a long line and you've got mm-hmm. casinos at one end and you've got say surfers and and um divers well, somewhere I, in the middle yeah going. actually going back to skiing i'm amazed at how many people are heading to korea and japan and people from southeast asia who just want to experience the snow right and yeah. uh when what what you were saying earlier was uh <coughs> i thought quite correct and that uh 
the only Cambodian you met you met abroad 20 years ago mm. uh, was a refugee. They didn't even have part. They never had passports. Right. And the thing is that um, when you were travelling, then your interactions, like unless you really made the effort, your interactions with local people was primarily a transactional one. Right. Mm-hmm. You were buying a beer or a somtam or paying for a room or whatever. Um, but when they're when you're sharing the dorm with them or you're hanging out in the common room or whatever, it changes the whole dynamic. Um, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of positiveness that, that can come out of that. Um, and like I said before, coming back to like the general sort of what's going on in the world and people are becoming less and less into other nationalities and that kind of thing. I think having this kind of cultural interchange is a really undervalued benefit of tourism that uh, the governments really don't seem to be switched on to. Despite the governments, uh, on a final note, you sound quite positive about the outlook for the industry. I guess travel is going to happen anyway. Uh, It's it's going to happen anyway. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm very positive about the outlook. I'm very positive about the potential of what it could be. I don't see that being realised, at least in the short term, term on a grand scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see small pockets of really interesting um, community-focused tourism that's going on that's, um, that is heartening. Um, but for every project like that, there's something like Sionokville, which is a, a disaster area. Yes. Um, so I think with a pivot and a bit more effort and a bit more of a long side of view from the tourism departments yeah i mean there's there's stacks of potential and then in that case on a final note uh perhaps you can name three prime destinations that uh no one else knows about uh, (laughs) that that, uh could be worth visiting over the next 12 to 24 months 12 to 24 months Okay, I'll, I'll pick them across a few different countries. So in eastern Indonesia, there's an island called Alor, and off the west coast of that is a tiny island uh, called Kepa Island that has one place to stay and some of the best diving in the region. Uh, the people who have been running the place there have been running it 20 years, I think, this year, and I love it. It's one of my favourite places in, in Indonesia. In Vietnam, I'm a really big rap on Hue, which is... Yep. is a, long been a, a popular place to go but it it still seems strangely little yeah. visited because people are in such a rush to get to Hoi An right. and it's like slow down smell the coffee give it two or three nights at least I think it's a a really wonderful city and the food is is just spectacular and a third one well that's a bit tricky I'm trying to think of somewhere in Thailand off the top of my head Maybe Sanklaburi, which is sort of up a couple of hundred k's west of Kanchanaburi, so on the near the border with mm-hmm. Cambodia. Um, it's a very interesting, beautiful place, very low key. Primarily now gets local tourism because the backpackers don't have enough time anymore. And it's a beautiful spot. Walking across the the wooden bridge there early in the morning is is yeah pretty special. Okay, all right, uh, Stuart McDonald. Look, it's been a fantastic chat. Uh, thanks very much, and. Um, All the best for the future. Thank you, Luke.